This message by Jeff Perswell titled, The End Times, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the 7th General Session at our next 2010 conference. Jeff is the Dean of the Sovereign Grace Ministries Pastors College and serves on the pastoral team at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. What a delight to be here with you. Um, I love this conference. I love what happens at this conference. I, I love the people who are at this conference. I love addressing people your age or the age of, of many of you. Because um, every, every time I do, it just takes me back to when I was the age of many of you and my own life underwent a, a dramatic conversion and um, and that moment, which was almost to the day now, I think 29 years ago, it set my life on a... It just completely reoriented my reality. And it set my life on a trajectory that was just light years different from what I was on. And I was, I was on a trajectory that was not, that was not good. And, and my life today looks very different because of decisive changes that happened then and life-altering decisions that happened then. And so I come here and I see you and I think, well, you're there now. And so um, I just hope you get the privilege. I'm sure you do. I hope you get the privilege of having a context like this. I, I wish I would have had this kind of context. I don't mean to sound like drone on like an old uncle or something, but um, I, I do wish I would have had a context like this where you are being equipped with biblical categories and biblical wisdom. And, and then so many of you come from churches where you have pastors who teach you God's Word and care for you and shepherd you through these decisive, life-altering years. And so I come here, and I don't mean to be melodramatic, but I do tremble at the privilege of adding just a drop to the bucket of what you have received and I'm just grateful that you've come to this conference and I'm grateful that you rolled out of bed one more time um, for the last session so thanks thanks for doing that open your Bibles if you would to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians chapter 4 appropriate to the end of this conference I've my assignment is the topic of, I think on the website, it was the end times or something like that. Eschatology is the word many of you would be familiar with. That's the category of theology we're, we're addressing today. Eschatology, big word for late in the conference and just literally means the study of the last things. It's the from an adjective in Greek that means last, so the study of the last things. And, and I was interested to get this topic because there, there's no area of, of doctrine that is more, I think, charged with fascination, with speculation, with confusion than the area of eschatology. I don't know how many people approached me when they found out what I was speaking about and said, Oh, you're teaching on eschatology. Whoa! What are you going to say? I just felt like I had such power. I, 
I will unveil it at the conference. Um, so what comes to your mind when you hear the word eschatology? Here's what many imagine. You can cue the action movie trailer guy voice. In one cataclysmic moment, millions around the globe disappear. Vehicles suddenly unmanned, careen out of control. People are terror-stricken as loved ones vanish before their eyes. In the midst of global chaos, airline captain Rayford Steele, what a name, Rayford Steele must search for his family for answers, yea, for truth. As devastating as the disappearances have been, the darkest days may lie ahead for those who are left behind. A blurb from the book, Left Behind. You want fascination? This book was followed by 15 sequels. 65 million plus copies sold. That's like 20% of our population. And sadly, millions, no doubt, assuming that the theology contained in these books is biblical. I was raised on this kind of stuff. I, I'll never forget in, in youth group watching a movie. It's called A Thief in the Night. Do you, do you see the movie? Do you remember? You know, it opens, click, 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 little alarm clock, and then the radio snaps on, and this voice comes on. Millions have disappeared mysteriously throughout the world, and some are saying that this is the rapture of certain streams of theology. And this lady pops up out of bed and she's looking around and the radio announcer continues to go. And then all of a sudden she realizes her husband's not in bed and she looks around, honey, honey, and she goes into the bathroom. And this was terrifying. In the bathroom, the electric razor is just vibrating in the sink. <laughs> Unmanned. And she screams, ah! And for after that movie, I mean, every time I, I would come in the house, it just terrified me. I'd come in the house and I thought my parents were there. And I'd Mom, Dad, and I wouldn't hear anything. I'd just think, oh, no. <laughs> Mom! Very effective discipline tool. You disobey, I'm going to disappear, son. But the stakes get even higher when fascination turns into speculation, especially about end-time events, particularly the return of Christ. Countless predictions, and this has been going on since the first century, countless predictions about the return of Christ. Um, some of you, or most of you probably are too young to remember this, but I mean, I rem I, I've had one of these in my, in my history. Right after I graduated from college, um, there was a... There was a booklet that came out. It, it, over three million copies of this booklet uh, were sold. It was entitled this, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I mean, that'll get your attention. So the rapture was predicted for September the 12th, 1988. Three million copies sold. Really, no, no joke, a furor in many parts of, of evangelicalism until September 13th, 1988. 
course, very predictably, the author revised his prediction to September 1st, 1989, and then after that to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, 1990 or 1991 or 1992, or at the latest, September 15th to 17th, sort of hedging his bets, 1993. I, I, I don't know where he is. I suppose he's out of the prediction business. Um, <laughs> I mean, I could spend all morning detailing examples of what we could call eschatology gone bad. Um, But the the sad reality is this. Every time eschatology is abused, do you know what happens? People are disillusioned. Um, Biblical truth, it's trivialized. And the hope of Christ's return diminished. And ultimately, the gospel itself is undermined. So in this area, we need to be informed. We need to be equipped. We need to be equipped with discernment. We want to avoid the extremes of of obsessing about the end times, eschatomania, or reacting to that and just saying, oh, I'm scared, I don't want to talk about it, eschatophobia. Or somewhere in the middle, just shrug our shoulders and say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what you believe. It does matter. Scripture teaches about eschatology because eschatology, like every other doctrine, is meant to function in our lives. It's meant to have an effect on the way we live. It's meant to have an effect on the way we relate to God. It's meant to have an effect on the way we worship. It's meant to have an effect on the way we study. It's meant to have an effect on the way we interact with our friends. It's meant to have a way, an effect on the way we work. It's meant to have an effect on the way we die. And that's where you see practical eschatology. Nowhere is eschatology as real or important as at a funeral where we encounter ultimate realities. You may not have been to too many funerals yet, but that you will. So eschatology, eschatology matters. And here's why. Here's how we could sum up the thrust of eschatology, the import of eschatology. I'd sum it up this way. It should be on the screen. Eschatology assures us. It has an assuring function. It assures us that God's purposes will prevail. God's purposes that you've been studying throughout your Christian lives, that you've been hearing about this weekend, those purposes will prevail. So it assures us and it motivates us. It motivates us to live faithfully. Motivates us to live faithfully until they do, until those purposes are fulfilled. That's the thrust of the Bible's teachings about the last things. Those things are proceeding according to God's sovereign plan. We can be assured of that. And not just assured, we it changes the way we live. We live in light of those purposes and in light of the destination to which all things are heading. And so that's what we want to look at this morning.
And we're going to do it through the lens of 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. So hopefully you are there in your Bibles. Look with me as I read, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray. Gracious Father, in these final moments of this conference, I pray you would speak that My prayer, Lord, you know the ambitions I have for the people in this room. Lord, I pray you'd fulfill those. I pray, Lord, you would, that that every person, every person would encounter you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, this text is a key 
I'm going to keep using this word eschatological. You know what I mean, right? It has to do with the end times. It's a, it's a key eschatological text in the New Testament. And it touches upon a number of issues. This church was confused about a, a number of things. After Paul planted this church, he was quickly run out of town. And so he left this church. They were, they were left behind to endure persecution for those around them. And so he writes in this book in this letter, to encourage them and to strengthen them. And he writes to correct some of their misunderstandings, especially about the end. And so that's the context of, of what we've, we've read. Now, what I'm going to do is to address the topic of eschatology through the prism of this text. It, this text doesn't tell us everything about eschatology, not even close. No single text does. That's the mistake you must always avoid in dealing with eschatology. If you, if you approach eschatology through a single text, then it's precisely that approach that leads to wrong eschatology or eschatology that is out of proportion, that misses biblical emphases. And so this text doesn't tell us everything, but it's a good guide. And I think it will serve us well. All right. So from this text, I want to look at five what I'll call eschatological takeaways. Five eschatological takeaways, five aspects of biblical eschatology that that are prominent biblically, not just in this text, but biblically, and, and that will help serve the function of eschatology, which we mentioned earlier, to assure us that God's purposes indeed will prevail and to motivate us, to inspire us to live faithfully. All right? So that's how we'll proceed. So takeaway number one. Takeaway number one. Eschatology is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul begins in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, parenthesis, there's some misunderstanding about Christians who have died that is disturbing these people. Either these Christians wouldn't be resurrected or when Jesus returned, they'd miss out on something glorious. So that's one of those two. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, let me read that again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So catch how Paul addresses their concern. Verse 14 gives the reason why they shouldn't grieve about those who've died. Do you see the reason? What does he appeal to? The gospel. The basic confession of the Christian. Jesus died and rose again. This is the foundation of our hope. This, this is what guarantees the future. They're wondering, will these, will our friends, will our family, those who have died, will they rise again? Will they see Jesus return? Paul's answer is, absolutely they will. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. That's why. What do you mean, Paul? Well, I mean this, because Jesus conquered sin, because Jesus purchased redemption, and only because of this, there is a future hope for believers. We will be resurrected. Why? Jesus' resurrection guarantees it. 
It's beyond question. You see the reasoning. Their future hope is rooted in Christ's past work. It's rooted in the gospel. Now, this is incredibly important for eschatology. You cannot disconnect eschatology from the gospel. When you think about the end times, don't just go there and leave the gospel behind. All right, now let me just think about that for a second. We're, we're, used to, we, we're used to talking about the gospel and salvation. We're used to salvation terminology, aren't we? Uh, we're saved, right? You're saved when you turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Isn't that great? You're, yeah, you're supposed to say, yeah. Um, that's right. And, and so what happens when you're saved? Well, you taste of salvation. You experience at that moment forgiveness of sins. You you receive a new heart. You receive the gift of the Spirit. It's glorious. It's wonderful. But it's not complete. You're saved, but you're not saved. There is a past tense to salvation, but there's also a future tense to salvation. Your salvation, as real and as definitive as it is, it's not done. It won't be until Christ returns. He will return and then He will remove from you and me and, and, and from the cosmos, from the planet, from all of His creation. He will remove all of the effects of sin. <laughs> That's right. And so, you are saved you're, and CJ preached on sanctification tonight. You're battling sanctification. But when he, comes, when he comes back, guess what? Your salvation will be complete. No more sanctification. No more battle. No more struggling with pornography like, like Bob was mentioning. It's going to be done. You see the connection. Eschatology is not about a, a lot of cool stuff that may happen in the future. No, it's the, the completion of what, be, what begun in the past. So never disconnect eschatology from your salvation. One of the most common mistakes we make, again, is, is separating eschatology, not just from salvation, but from other parts of, of, of doctrine, from other parts of, of theology, especially the gospel. I mean, eschatology becomes, well, it just becomes speculation. It becomes, it becomes future events. It becomes all kinds of... Interesting questions. I mean, what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation? Are we there? Are we not? Where's it going to come from? Who's going to do it? Who's the Antichrist? I remember when I was a kid, I kid you not, Sunday school, we had a teacher, and this was our lesson, and I must have been six years old, and they, they put up, she put, it was a woman, she put up a number of blanks on the board, like, you know, blanks for letters, and she went through this elaborate numerological exercise that slowly filled in each letter. And at the end, I'm sitting there as a, I don't know, seven-year-old, and I realize at that moment that Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist. I just couldn't believe it. our Secretary of State was the Antichrist. 
what a bummer of a for a six-year-old, you know, just wow. When will Jesus return? What about Israel? I mean, there's there's all these questions. Listen, it, it just becomes an add-on to your theology. Eschatology is not meant to be an add-on to your theology. In many ways, think of it like this. Eschatology is the crown of theology. It's the crown of theology. It, it answers questions that other doctrines raise. And so, we believe in God's good providence. Where is God's providence leading? We, we know Jesus paid for our sin and He's helping us battle that sin, but how will sin finally be overcome? We know that Jesus triumphed on the cross. What's it going to look like when He finally triumphs over all things? How, how will the Holy Spirit finish His work in us? Last night you studied the doctrine of the church. What, what will the church ultimately look like? Eschatology answers all these questions. If your eschatology is unformed, your, your doctrine, your beliefs will be unformed as well. So, here, let me suggest this. Here's another way to define eschatology. It's not just the doctrine of the last things. Think of it like this. It's the study, it's the study of the consummation of the purposes of God. The consummation of of the purposes of God. All of God's purposes find their consummation. They find their resolution. They find their completion in biblical eschatology. It's a glorious study. And at the center of those purposes, the, the climax of God's redemptive work, the unifying theme of the Bible, the unifying theme of history itself, is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, when you think about eschatology, make sure your thinking it flows from the gospel. Make sure your thinking is informed by the gospel. Make sure your thinking is tied to the gospel because eschatology is the consummation of the gospel. That's the first takeaway from this text. Takeaway number two. Takeaway number two. Eschatology is centered on the return of Christ. Centered on the return of Christ. And so after Paul affirms that believers will be resurrected, he now locates that resurrection at a particular point, at the point, the point when Jesus returns. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with a sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul eases their minds. The dead in Christ will not be excluded from the grand celebration of Christ's return. In fact, it's that very return that will trigger the resurrection. 
through the cry of command. You know what that cry of command is? That is the command that will summon the dead from the graves. That's what it is. But in answering their question, Paul redirects their attention. He redirects their focus away from their loved ones to the main event, to the the centerpiece of eschatology, the return of Jesus Christ. With all that we could say about eschatology, all the interesting topics and all the stuff you see on television about eschatology, this is the preeminent event. Never forget that. When the New Testament, listen, when the New Testament deals with eschatology, it is much more concerned with the last one than the last things. The early church looked not so much for a succession of events as they did for the arrival of a person. It was very personal for persecuted Christians. It should be very personal for us as well. You put it in theological terms. You ready? I know. It's been a long conference. Eschatology is thoroughly Christological. Right? Eschatology is thoroughly Christological. That's just another way of saying it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Christ... Christ's return, if you think eschatology, Christ's return is like the hub of a wheel. And all the other stuff is just like spokes coming off of that wheel. And they only have meaning relative to the, to the hub, relative to Christ's return. Now that's not our normal tendency when it comes to this topic, is it? Our tendency is to be all fascinated and caught up with times and seasons and charts and graphs, the events of the end, the the when and, and the how. The Bible's primarily concerned with the who. When the last one arrives, the succession of events will matter little. This is the supreme event. This is the one to which all Orthodox believers throughout history have looked. This is the one that all history, toward which all history is barreling forward. This is the event in which we hope. Now, there, despite agreement on this, there are many aspects of Christ's return about which there is disagreement. And you are probably aware of that. One of the biggest of these has to do, one of the biggest areas of disagreement has to do with the millennium. The millennium. There's no single topic more debated than the millennium. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, finally he's getting to the millennium. And others are thinking, millennia what? Melanie, 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 who? Um, the, so, a definition, or else some people will be disappointed. Um, the millennium simply means a thousand years. Okay, it translates 
the Latin word, translates a Greek term that only appears in one part of the Bible, appears six times in Revelation 20. That's where it comes. A thousand years. And it refers to a period that where Satan is bound with a chain, and then after that, Christ reigns for a thousand years. So here's where so many questions come about this thousand years. Is it, for instance, a literal 1,000 years? Is this a future period uh, where Christ will reign on the earth and uh, believers will reign with Him in, in glorified bodies and there's still sinners on earth, but, but believers are glorified and resurrected, reigning with Him before eventually a final conflict. Maybe it's a thousand years later, maybe... Maybe a long period of time later, but a final conflict and final judgment. Is, is that the scenario? That's what we would call a, I'm just, you might be familiar with some of this. That's what we would call a premillennial view, meaning Christ comes before the millennium, right? Comes and then there's the millennium. Or is this a period of time before Christ returns? So post-millennium, Christ comes after the millennium. Oh, what happens during that millennium? Well, some would say the gospel during this millennium, this, this long period of time, the gospel is going to spread. The gospel is not only going to spread, it's going to triumph. It's going to triumph over all the world and, and issue in really a golden age. And not every single person is going to be saved, but, but it, all nations and governments will, will adhere to the truth of the Bible and will align their laws and their societies according to the truth of God's word. And things get so great throughout the world that that ushers in the return of Christ. Is that, is that what the millennium? Is. That's a post-millennial view. Or does this millennium, this period, does this mean the church age? Does this speak of the church age, the time between Christ's two comings, the first and the second? And, and during this time, the gospel spreads because Satan is bound and the gospel is going to all nations. And, and God's people are being gathered. The elect are being gathered through the, through the gospel call. But, but there's still sin. There's still persecution. There's still opposition. And an ultimate triumph, triumph awaits Christ's return. So Christ comes back after that period of time. Now, we can't go into all those details. The last one is the right one. But... Um, <laughs> Maybe that whets your appetite a little bit. Maybe it, you say, forget it. Um, I can't sort through all those options, but let me encourage you to study this on your own. I want to recommend a, a book for you. Um, I know you can't see this, but maybe you can see it up there. It's called Christ and the Future. It's a, it's a wonderful, clear presentation of, of all, all aspects of eschatology, but there are three chapters alone uh, on the millennium. The, the author is uh, Cornelis Venema. Um, Christ in the Future. There's, there's other good books as well. Uh, but let me encourage you to, to read. Let me encourage you to read a good book. And, 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 and here's a hint. If your book has been made into a movie, <laughs> it's probably not a good one to study for your theology, as interesting as it might be. Well, we can't sort through all this. But those are some of the issues. And I had about three people say, so is your message on the millennium? And I said, no, it's not. But I do want to explore a few aspects very quickly, uh, a few observations about the return of Christ. Millennial questions 
aside. The, the high point of eschatology, what is Christ's return going to be like? Just a few subpoints under this one. First of all, it is a personal and visible return. You know, some want to spiritualize Christ's return. Well, he came back spiritually at Pentecost. And, and so, you know, now he's with us and, and uh, always with us. And, and there is no future return. Well, I'm sorry, that fails to do justice to all kinds of very clear scriptures. Do you remember when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1 and the angels come and announce this Jesus, which Jesus, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So it's personal. This Jesus, the same Jesus. And this won't be some invisible secret event. He's not going to sneak in. No. Um, when Jesus comes back, here's one of, one of the things that's happening. He's being vindicated. He will come back and we'll all see him. Everyone will see him and they'll say, yes, he is who he said he was. And you know what else? You will be vindicated. Your faith in Christ that's ridiculed and scoffed, his believers will be vindicated as well. Isn't that good news? There will be no more scoffing. There will be no more marginalizing of your views by secular presuppositions. No. It'll be done. As Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. This is personal. It's visible. It's real. It's more, more real than this. Second, it's a climactic return. A climactic return. Here's what I mean by this. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be a, a climactic event, a, a consummating event, an event which draws everything to a conclusion. It's an event which will usher in everything else. It will usher in the consummation of God's purposes, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. So it's a climactic event. And, and the reason I mention that is because so often end-time scenarios are, are very... I mean, I can't even understand half of them. They're, they're very detailed and complex with intricate details about this happens then and then this is going to happen then and this requires charts and, and diagrams and wouldn't it be great if, you know, if we had all these up behind me? And, and um, I mean, it's fascinating. It draws a lot of people to conferences. But I'm afraid it doesn't capture the biblical's presentation. Texts that speak of Christ's return tend to cluster all the events. It's what's, what's called, what we could call the, the parousia. I'm just throwing out these things to kind of wake you up or maybe put you to sleep. Parousia is the Greek word for Christ's coming or His appearing. The parousia constellation, meaning with His return, there's a constellation of events. They're all linked with it. He doesn't return and then, you know what, away in the future all kinds of other stuff will happen. No, when he returns, it's climactic. When he returns, it ushers in everything. When Christ returns, he will abolish all rule and authority and dominion. Every enemy, Satan, and the final enemy, death itself. Oh, it's going to be climactic, brothers and sisters. There's not, he's not going to come and then uh, he's not going to allow sin and rebellion and Satan to just kind of continue on. 
many good Christians believe that. I'm not being dismissive, but I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe that the Bible teaches when He comes, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. Finally, Christ's return. Amen. I'd love to clap too. I want you to catch your plane. Um, Christ's return will be a triumphant return. There's going to be a profound difference between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. His first coming, and praise God it was like this, was in humiliation. It It was in obscurity. And poverty. And suffering. His second coming is going to be not in humiliation, but in exaltation. Triumph and glory. There will be, and please let this be more than eschatological data, let this be more than a line in a sermon, there will be a universal disclosure of Christ's splendor and honor and dominion and beauty and authority. Universal disclosure. Every knee will bow. This is far different from C.S. Lewis's picture of hell where the rebel's flag is planted. There will be no rebel flags planted. There will be universal acknowledgement and, and bowing at His glory. He who came first as a lamb is coming back as a lion. And every knee will Bow. That's pictured in this text, as a matter of fact. Let me, let me show you two quick words here. You see in verse 15, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. You see that term? Coming? That's that parousia word I was talking about. That, that term was, was very commonly used for the glorious coming of, of a deity or the uh, arrival of, of a sovereign to a, to a city. It would describe an imperial visit. That, that's how Christ's return is being pictured here. An imperial visit. And then, and then look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the air, in in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. You see that little word? That that was practically a technical term in the ancient word, that word meet. It describes describes an official delegation that that would be sent to the outskirts of a city to receive a visiting dignitary. They would receive that dignitary with pomp and with honor and with with tribute, and they would escort that dignitary dignitary back into the city. You see the picture? Jesus is coming back as the glorious, triumphant Lord, and at His return, He will summon the dead from the graves, and believers will be transformed, and what we will do, we will meet Him. We will not fly away. We're going to meet Him and escort Him back to His glorious domain in a new heavens and a new earth. That's what's there. That, my friends, is what we have to look forward to.
which leads to the third takeaway. Takeaway number three. Eschatology looks forward to perfect fellowship in the presence of God. Perfect fellowship in the presence of God. Remember, eschatology studies the consummation of God's purposes. Well, we see that we see that here. We see that here because all of history has been has been heading for this. Look at the beautiful little phrase in verse 17, the last phrase. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and oh you can underline this and so we will always be with the Lord. Amen. Always be with the Lord. In the, in, that's what the Bible's about. In the opening pages of Scripture, we see God preparing a garden and, and setting His image bearers in that garden, providing for them, blessing them, fellowshipping with them. But sin devastated it, didn't it? Sin brought death and distortion and defilement. And so man is cast out of the garden, away from fellowship with God. But what happens? God doesn't relinquish His people, does He? He he chooses this pagan, moon-worshipping Iraqi named Abraham. And He makes a covenant with them to bless him and his descendants, and and through them all the nations. And so throughout the pages, throughout the storyline of the Bible, God's commitment to dwell with a people persists. And so He leads the nation of Israel through the wilderness, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And, And then He takes up residence with them, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And finally, he, He dwells with them, He lives with them in the most personal way possible when the Son of God comes, whom John tells us the Word, this eternal Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. In other words, He came and He, and he set up a tent with us. But there's still separation. There's still separation. Sin persisted. Something had to be done. And so this one, this word became flesh who dwelt among us, offered himself up as a sacrifice to pay for our sins, to satisfy the demands of God's holy wrath. And after he rose again and after he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. And now God dwells not only with us, but in us, in the church in individual Christians. There's one final act to this divine drama when, as our text said, Jesus Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And the dead shall be raised and believers transformed. And as our text says, and so we will always be with the Lord. So if you're a Christian... And you're losing sight of just, what, what's all this about, man? Quiet times, you get tired of it. There's a lot of hassle being a Christian. It means I've got to obey my mom and dad more. And, but I want, you know, it, it, it just gets hard. 
Because we're in a battle. You're right, it gets hard. We're in a battle. But step back. This is where you are headed. Perfect fellowship with your Creator and your Savior. All sin destroyed. No more hassles. No more fighting. No more falling. All corruption and distortion removed from creation. No shame. No guilt. No repentance. No barrier. Perfect friendship with God. And all those, all those He saved. Isn't that thrilling? The alternative is terrifying. Which leads to takeaway number four. Takeaway number four. Eschatology pronounces the coming justice of God. The coming justice of God. In chapter 5, Paul goes on to look at this scenario from a different angle, from the standpoint of unbelievers, those who do not belong to Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, sort of watchwords of the Roman Empire, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. You've got to remember that Paul is comforting a people who have been tried in the fires of persecution. And part of his consolation, note this, part of his consolation is this. Those persecuting you, those who reject the gospel of Christ, those who flaunt their autonomy and, and live God-ignoring lives, those who trust in themselves, those who live exclusively for this world, those who renounce the One who created them and who love them and who deserves their allegiance, all those, and, and they're, they're persecuting you and killing you, all those, they will receive justice. It doesn't escape God. That's what eschatology pronounces. When Christ returns, He will bring an end to all opposition. To all that rejects His rule. To all that defaces and spoils this good creation He made. He, he's coming to set everything right. That's what those... You know those verses in the Old Testament that speak of the righteousness of God? And, and sometimes you see verses that speak of, you know, the righteousness of God will come. What it means is the, the righteousness of God there means the right order of God. The right order of God. Creation is like a, it's like a beautiful castle that, that just had a riot break out and furniture was just thrown around and paintings were defaced and the, the place just went nuts. But Jesus is coming back and He's going to set everything right. He's going to put all the furniture back in place. He's going, to, he's going to kick all the rebels out. He's going to restore all the paintings. He's going to make it beautiful again. He's going to set it right. That's what Jesus is going to do. You ever get tired 
which is bad news. Man, the older I get, the, it's just the more tired I get. This isn't a political statement. I'm, I'm appointing no blame, but I'm just, it just, this oil, it's just going to keep going, I guess, because it's beyond our power for now. You know, again, that's not a, I just, I just don't like it. It just, and that's nothing compared to tragedy, injustice, genocide, narco thugs. Despots who enrich themselves and rip off their people and starve them. Because all the aid that comes in through NGOs, they take. Don't you get sick of that kind of stuff? Not to mention cancer and other diseases that wreak havoc on, on, on our bodies and on loved ones. Minds and people you love don't know you anymore. You ever get tired of that? Eschatology tells us something. It's all going to be set right. It's all going to be set right. And because... And because God is unimaginably holy. I mean, His character, flawless and unbending. And in His standards, absolutely righteous. And His judgments, unspeakably just. He must judge sin. And all those who renounce his authority. A God who tolerates evil is, is not worth worshiping. And so, for those who don't trust Christ, that day is coming like a thief. And with it, verse 3, sudden destruction. No escape. And instead of the perfect, blissful, fulfilling, ever-expanding, ever-intensifying, ever-accelerating experience of total joy 24-7 in the presence of God, you know what they'll be? Here's Jesus' words. Eternal fire. Torment. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. Eternal punishment. Those are Jesus' words. And, and He did not engage in hyperbole or melodrama. He used 
terrifying metaphors to communicate a reality more awful than those metaphors. And so I... I just have to assume that in a crowd this big that there are some who are not followers of Christ. And, and, and whether you just readily admit that and you're good with that and, and you're, you're you know, just here checking, it, checking this out, well, I'm, I'm very glad you are here checking it out. Whether, whether that's you or, or whether you call yourself Christian. People around you right now, they think you're a Christian, but that is a facade that veils a life lived for yourself. Ignoring God. Disregarding His Word. Serving and ruling yourself. Can, can I just appeal to you? The road you're on leads to utter destruction. Separation from God and others and all you hold dear. And and bearing yourself a very just, a very just and terrifying penalty for rebellion against a a righteous and holy God whose eyes are too pure to even look on evil. Let me but but let me appeal to you it can be oh it can be different. You you can turn from your sins. God commands you to return from your sins and to believe in Jesus, His Son, to, turn, to, to trust that He is who He claimed to be and what's been preached, this, that He is who He is, has been preached this week, the, the Savior sent from God, to, that, that He died for your sins, bearing the moral penalty, a moral penalty you deserved. Submitting His life your life to His rule. It's, it's a just rule. It's a, it's a tender rule. It's a benevolent rule. It's a gracious rule. It's a loving rule. You, your, your heart, your life, your destiny will be changed forever. I promise. You can spend the rest of your life with freedom. And with a clear conscience. And with purpose. And with joy. And with blessing. And in the age to come, eternal life with the glorious Savior. How? How can the future be different? It's simple. Believe in Him. Entrust yourself to Him. Ask His forgiveness. And submit to His rule. That's it. Lean on Him. The Puritans used to speak about leaning on Christ. Just Here's Christ. Just take your life and just do this. You don't have to be sophisticated. 
You certainly don't have to be perfect. You have to clean your life up first. You just, just, just lean on Him. You could do it right now. You could do it right now. You could do it with a friend later. You could do it by yourself later. But please consider this. Please do it. Let this day, this day we're looking at, let it, let it be a joy and not a terror. Number five, finally. Takeaway number five. The purpose of eschatology is to provide hope and motivation for our daily lives now. Paul is not content simply to give information about the last days. He seizes the opportunity to spur them on. Verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul doesn't want to just inform their understanding about eschatology. He wants them to see the implications. That's how the New Testament deals with eschatology. Always. It puts it to work. Eschatology is meant to function. It's it's never merely about events. It's never merely about the future. It's about now. It's about how you live, how you and I conduct ourselves now. How is it meant to function? I just want to give you two ways and it will be done. Two main ways. First, to encourage us with hope in a certain future. To encourage us with hope in a certain future. That's what biblical hope is. It is not optimism. It's not crossing our fingers and putting on a smile and just hoping it's going to work out. It's a deep-seated confidence in what we know will come to pass. And so when the Bible teaches about the end times, it's, it's meant to do something to you. It's meant to infuse your heart with hope. It's meant to, to convince you that, that God is, is sovereign over every molecule in this in this universe and, and that nothing can thwart his purposes or plans and that history is heading inexorably towards its definitive end and, and not only history but your life, your, your life is in his hands and nothing, do you believe this, nothing can cause you ultimate harm. Now you may die. <laughs> Who cares? It, it, nothing can cause you ultimate harm. Everything, this is what eschatology teaches, everything that comes to you passes through, it's like your life's down here and everything that comes just passes through those careful fingers of His. Every trial and every heartache and every pain and, and every ambiguity, I just don't get it, that's okay. It came from Him and it's being molded by Him, shaped, He's got very active hands on your life and He's shaping everything for, for your good. A day is coming. You can't see it now. You don't. You can't figure it out now. But a day is coming when you will see it then, and you'll go, "Oh, that was way." Uh, 
infinitely more wise. God, how did you how did you calculate all those events? And how did I how did I know that that was going to be for such good? And I had I hated that, but it's so good now, and I'm so glad now. And I see all the good you brought, Lord. That day's coming. That day is coming. There's going to be no more questions except childlike questions. Lord, show me more now. What's the next thing we do now? Those questions. The purposes of God and the wisdom of God and the plans, they're going to be just laid out fully on display. And when you stand there, maybe still smarting a bit from this life, he's going to reach out and he's going to wipe away every tear from your eye personally. Revelation chapter 21. That's why Paul says at the end of chapter 4 and in 5 verse 11, Therefore, brothers, encourage one another. That's what it does. It encourages. Secondly, the second way it's meant to function, to exhort us to live consistently with our hope and expectation. Here's a key for eschatology. You're going to write down anything else, write this down. Eschatology is always tied to ethics. Unbreakable connection. With eschatology, there's always a goal. It's always meant, it always has in view a way of life, a response to God's Word. So with the hope comes exhortation. You see it here. You're children of light. That's hope. You're children of the day. That means you're saved. But then what does he say? So, let us not sleep. As others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Awake and sober. Awake! Wake up! Be alert! Have your moral radar engaged. Be alert to the opportunities that God gives you for for good and faithfulness. Don't be asleep. Don't, Don't just chill your way through the Christian life waiting for the next product from Apple. Wake up! And you're sober. You're you're not just (laughs) running around, tossed to and fro, upset, lacking poise, just... No. Your mind is stable. You're solid as a rock. Your, Your mind is fixed. Your mind is stable. So, how, how do you get ready for Christ's second coming? This is it. You're not fixated on the Middle East. You're not consumed by current events. You're not frightened by what's happening in the world. You're resting in Christ and you're living by His Word. Notice how Paul defines sober here. Faith, hope, and love. You see that in verse 8? Faith, hope, and love. In other words, you live your Christian life. You rest in Jesus and you live by His Word. You do that. And you're ready. You follow Christ with all your heart. You give yourself to serve others. 
You give yourself to the church. You share the gospel. You, you just live this incredible life that we've been given, that's been laid out for you this week. You, 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 you pursue that with all your heart, with all the joy that it entails. You're ready. Let me close with a question. What's your attitude towards the return of Christ? What's your attitude? Now, the way you answer that question really is a gauge of your spiritual life. Stick with me. This is the very end. It reveals something. Uh, it, it reveals how you view the world. Is the world your, your preoccupation? Is it your friend? Or is it a, a very good thing gone horribly bad and in need of a Savior? So it reveals your, your, your view of the world. It reveals what your heart is set on. In other words, how much your attitude towards the return of Christ will reveal what your heart is set on. Hey, am I so consumed with stuff, you know, with things or events or activities or, or, or plans or, or pleasure? Am I so consumed with those things and my mind is filled with those things that my, my hope in Christ's return is... Is just dimmed. It's faint. Yes, Jesus, I want you to come back, but you know, not now. I'm just having such a good time. And my education is such promise. And my look what I can make at this job in five years. When I become partner in ten years, Jesus, not yet. It reveals where your hope is. Where do you find consolation? Is it what you accomplish? Is it your GPA? <laughs> some, some laugh and say, definitely not. Um, <laughs> is it what, what college or medical school will ex- or law school will accept you having passed the... MCATs or the LSATs? Is it, is it what relationship I'm in? Is it what career awaits me? All, all those are, are important things, but is your hope there? Is, it what you're, is that what you're leaning on? Is it what you're relying on? Or is it outside this world? Titus 2, Paul captures the intended heart cry of a believer. You'll be able to read it on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, is, is Christ's return your blessed hope? Are you, are you apathetic? Or are you preparing? Are, are you indifferent to that? Or are you yearning? Let's yearn 
Let's yearn for that day. Let's pray. Blessed Savior. Lord, for us in this room, you have poured out such unspeakable blessings. You have enriched us in every way. Father, may those things not satisfy us. May material blessings not capture our hope. Lord, I pray that all our blessings would only whet our appetite for more. More to come. A future that is more glorious than we've experienced. Yes, more glorious than we could imagine. Jesus in ever-increasing ways, may you capture our hearts so that your return would indeed be our blessed hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Jeff Perswell, which was given at our next 2010 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.